0: different definitions of faith. Uh, First of all, how does the Bible define faith? And we know from Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, the Bible says, and the writer of the Hebrews says, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And the Webster definition of faith is complete trust or confidence in someone or something. And some synonyms for faith are belief, trust, conviction, And uh, one question that is going to kind of come up a few different times tonight is how do we measure success? Hey, all right, there we go. So we're going to start in uh, Mark 6, we're going to read verses 1 through 6. Then he went out from there and came to his own country, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many hearing him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this which is given to him, that such mighty works are performed by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his house. Now he could do no mighty work there except he laid hands on a few sick people and healed them, and he marveled at their unbelief. Then he went about the villages in a circuit teaching. So, first of all, in verse 1, where did he just come from? And you remember from the previous uh, sections in Mark. Where they just came from uh, was the Galilee uh, Capernaum area. And so they'd actually traveled back to Nazareth, Jesus' hometown, which is about 20 miles to the west. So, verses 2 and 3, what is the first response that they had to Jesus' message? And, and so often we see, and we saw it uh, actually a few weeks back in 1 Corinthians, that in order to attack a message, that the, the best way to beat that down and attack that is to actually attack the messenger. So right off the bat, you've got this questioning of where did Jesus get the right or the authority to, to actually uh, preach to them this way and teach to them this way. And uh, what we find in that section of First Corinthians chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, that the Apostle Paul's faced with this, and he's actually having to defend his apostleship. And he says, am I not an apostle? So, um, again, the same type of mentality. And, and we do this, you know, often. When we hear a message that we don't really want to take in, what's well, a whole lot easier to say, who is he to be telling me what to do? And that's the same thing that we're doing to, to Jesus. In verses 4 through 6, we note that Jesus marvels at their unbelief. And we see how this is uh, contrasted in another story in the Bible where Jesus actually marveled at the belief of someone else. So if you would, uh, in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 7, and we're going to look at that here in just a second, but as you're turning to that, you recall the story of the centurion. And in this story, the centurion actually goes to Jesus because his servant is sick. And he says to Jesus, you know, would you please come with me, and, and, or would you, would you heal my servant? And Jesus says, yeah, I'll come with you. I'm giving you the B.A.V. version, sorry about that, but I'm going to shorten it up. But Jesus says, sure, I'll, I'll come with you. And the centurion replies to Jesus that, no, I'm a man of authority, and I recognize another man of authority. And I know that if you say the word for my servant to be healed, you don't have to come. You've got the authority to do it. And Jesus marveled at his faith. If you would, turn with me to Luke 7, 9. And if you won't turn with me, I'm going to read it anyway. So you can listen to me. In Luke 7, verse 9, when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turned around and said to the crowd that followed him, I say to you, I have not found such a great faith, not even in Israel. And those Who were sent, returning to the house, found the servant well who had been sick. So, right here, we see the contrasting of unbelief and just what a power that has versus belief and what a a power that belief can have in the case of the centurion. And what I'd like to do for a few minutes is just look at some examples of some Hall of Faithers as we talk about this faith. What does faith look like? How can we how can we view it in, in some biblical examples? And because I'm a sports fan, I apologize if you're not a sports fan, uh, but I am, and I'm sitting up here, and you're not, so we're going to look at some sports examples. Uh, we're going to look at some Hall of Famers. We're going to do a couple different case studies and just kind of view some of these, and then Hopefully bring it all together. I did so good the first time with the clicker, like I had it, and this time I feel like Lee up here. I'm so frustrated. I'm going to spike this. Can can we get the next slide, please? Thank you. All right. That was much easier. So uh, we're going to look at our first Hall of faith we're going to look at the story of Samson. We'll, we can turn back to the book of Judges in chapter 13, and we see that uh, even prior to his birth, his birth is announced, and he's actually a born leader with Samson. And what's interesting as we turn to to the 13th chapter of Judges, is, if anybody read the, uh, the Bible reading this morning, it's kind of an interesting nugget that in the section of Matthew that we read, that it was actually... Uh, prophesied that Jesus would be a Nazarene. And this is actually the section of Old Testament prophecy that that was taken out of. So, for behold, you shall conceive and bear a son, and no razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. So we see this... Great leader that is Samson, and and then chapters fourteen and fifteen we see the mighty works that he that he performs. He's killing lions with his bare hands and slaying Philistines with a jawbone of a donkey. I mean, what a stud! It's like something out of an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie, you know. And in uh, chapter fifteen, verse. 15, no, verse 16, Samson says, with the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey, I have slain a thousand men. So we just get this picture of this, of this great, mighty figure. And yet he had a few flaws, uh, more than a few. Samson uh, had some lady problems. So you recall the story of Delilah and, and tragically, Samson's life because of his uh, outlandish lifestyle Uh, comes to a very tragic ending. And in Judges 16, verse 28, we see the final prayer uh, of Samson when he says, O Lord God, remember me, I pray. Strengthen me, I pray. Just this once, O God, that I may with one blow take vengeance on the Philistines for my two eyes. And at that point in time, Samson shoves the pillars out and the building collapses and he takes all the Philistines with him. But the verdict on Samson's life, this up and down, back and forth, is we see from Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32, he's, uh, by some unknown reason, he's in the hall of faith. So we'll move on to the next, the sports example. Can I get the next slide? So I don't know how to use this. Oh, hey. George Herman Ruth, also known as the Great Bambino, at a very early age, uh, his physical ability uh, was obvious to anyone that, uh, that watched baseball. And throughout his career, the Sultan of Swat hit over 714 home runs, 10 World Series titles, and he had this natural charisma both on the field and off the field. And in 1932, his most infamous moment was uh, the World Series. And they were actually playing the Chicago Cubs. It was game three, they had won the previous two games at home in New York. They traveled to Chicago, and the crowd is going crazy. It's 4-4 four to four in the top of the fifth, and up steps Babe to the plate with two outs. And the Cubs fans are all over him. You stink, Ruth. You're nothing. First pitch, outside, but a called strike. Oh, he's furious. He's livid with the ump, and the fans are getting even that much more fired up. The next pitch, outside, but a called strike, too. And now he's had it, and the fans, they're really on his case now.
1: Get him out of there. He's nothing.
0: So before the next pitch, Babe takes these two fingers, and he points to center field. Now there's some debate if he was mouthing back to the other team, saying, I've only got two strikes. I've got one left. But according to the legend of Babe, he was actually pointing to center field and calling his shot. The next pitch, wouldn't you know it, high fly ball, and the rest is history. But his personal life, on the other hand, he lived just as big off the field as he did on the field, and a history of womanizing and uh, legendary drinking led him to, at the end of the 1935 season, as his physical abilities had diminished, uh, really no team wanted him. Uh, He he wanted badly to be a manager, even, any kind of job in baseball, and because of his uh, off-the-field track record, he just was kind of pushed out of the game and stuck to doing public appearances. And in, uh, at the age of 53, he actually passed away of cancer. But the verdict on Babe's life, he was named in 1999 the greatest baseball player who ever lived in a writer's poll and a first ballot Hall of Famer. I'll put a couple of Babe's quotes there on the right-hand side. I like the top one because I think it gives us some connection to how Samson lived his life. You know, I swing with everything I've got. I hit big and I miss big. I like to live as big as I can. And the bottom one I just put because I thought it was funny. Can we go to the next slide, please? All right, case study number two, King David. How humble beginnings from an unlikely family and the most unlikely son from an unlikely family. You recall from this story, uh, the prophet Samuel had just been told by God after Saul had a complete meltdown with the Amalekites. Saul was supposed to utterly wipe out the Amalekites, and he didn't do it and Samuel's told, I want you to go to Jesse the Bethlehemite. I want you to anoint a new king. So he goes to the house of Jesse. Jesse starts marching his sons one after another. And Jesse must have been some kind of DNA specimen himself because one son after another was more handsome and more rugged, but God kept saying, "No, that's that's not the one. That's not the one. You you're looking at the outside. I look to the inside." And so Finally, he runs out of sons, except, oh, we've got David out here in the field. They bring him in. The prophet Samuel dumps the five-gallon, five-gallon bucket of oil on David's head, and he's anointed king. And early victories that we see in David's life, um, the the victory over Goliath with the sling and then lopping off the giant's head. Uh, and if we go to 1 Samuel, as we journey through... we see the ladies starting to sing his praises. As the as the women sang and danced, anytime the women start singing and dancing after you fellas, it's, it's going to be trouble. Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. And we see uh, as David's life progresses, he in fact has lady trouble. The Bathsheba incident. Uh, and really at that point in time, his career took a turn in terms of the way we've, we view it. He, the, the troubles in his household continued. You've got rape, you've got murder, you've got sons trying to overthrow his kingdom. And, and at the end of his career, if we go to Second Samuel 21, uh, we will see that the giant that was so easy for him to slay, or at least perceived to be so easy to slay, early in his career, just about took him out. And in this section, you've got one of uh, Goliath's brothers actually battling it out with David. And in uh, oh, 21. Mm. 21, verse 16, and I'm, I'm sure I'm going to butcher these names. Then Ishbi Benab was one of the sons of the giant, and the weight of the bronze spear was 300 shekels, who was bearing a new sword thought he could kill David. But Abishai, the son of Zerui, came to his aid and struck the Philistine and killed him. And then the men of David swore to him, saying, You shall go out no more with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. So David was officially retired at that point in time. In the verdict on David, we see he's a first ballot hall of faither. He's the gold standard by which all the kings after him were measured. So as you as you go through the book of Kings, you'll see that Time after time, when you've got a good king, it's he followed after my son, David. So, uh, not to mention the line of the Messiah. If we can move to the next one, please. So, uh, probably a little bit blasphemous, but I compared David to Tiger Woods. And we'll see that Tiger's humble beginnings from a very unlikely family, the sport of golf, is known as a predominantly affluent sport and a predominantly white sport. So in 1996, when you've got an African-American kid breaking onto the scene, not only African-American, but his mom's Japanese, so he had none of the lineage necessary in the golfing world to be the next dominant star. But from the period of 1996 until 2008, Tiger won 14 major championships in a 12-year span. The record is 15, and it took Jack Nicholas 30 years to do that. Tiger dominated as the number one golfer in the world for 281 straight weeks. But in 2009, we see some setbacks. He, there was an uh, indiscretion, uh, an affair that Tiger had had that his wife Ellen Nordigen had found out about. And apparently Norwegian women you do not want to fool around on because she chased him down with a golf club and not only beat the tar out of Tiger, but his black Cadillac Escalade. Uh, And then some 25 women came out uh, that said they were also at the same time having different relationships with Tiger. And really his uh, golf career never made a recovery after that. And the giant that was once so easy for him to slay in a PGA tournament, he struggles to even make the cut. But the verdict on him, first ballot Hall of Famer. He's the gold standard. Every new golfer that comes in, they say, oh, is he the next Tiger? Is he the next Tiger? So if you would, please, the next slide. I'm going to put that there and give up. All right, how am I going to pull this craziness together? Probably not very well, but I'm going to try. How do we measure success? Are we looking at it through the lens of the world are we looking at it through the lens of heaven? Because the worldly lens, we see a lot of similarities between these characters. Um, and the worldly lens, if you, if you would turn with me to Psalm 106. Or the worldly pursuits is maybe a better way to put it. In verse 13 through 16, we see that they soon forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel, but they lusted exceedingly in the wilderness and tested God in the desert. And he gave them their request, but he sent leanness to their soul. So we see leanness being given to the soul. If you've ever had the opportunity to talk to somebody that has pursued success in terms of the world and gotten it, I would put to you that, at least in my experience, I have met some of the most shallow people you'll ever meet. God can give us the worldly success that we go after, but uh, often it leads to leanness of the soul. So what about these biblical examples? I mean, how how are some of these people, Hall of Faithers, when uh, it looked like their life for the most part was a complete train wreck, especially in the the case of, of Samson? Well, for one very good reason. Because what they had was faith. And uh, we look at, at the life of David, and in Psalm 51 is one of my personal favorites because I think it shows um, a man that is being as honest as, uh, as anybody we 've ever seen. You know is, it, This is written after the Bathsheba incident, and in particular verses 16 and 17, David says here, "For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering." The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. So what we often look at as success in the worldly lens is often leads to leanness to the soul. And what we can view as failure, complete brokenness, can be the very thing that God was looking for, the very sacrifice that he needed to see your brokenness, my brokenness, and then start to do a great work in our life. And that's where the faith of someone like David comes into play. That's why he's the first pallet hall of faith there, because he had the faith to turn back and realize that what God was truly looking for was brokenness in his life and just laying it all out there. Uh, in, in Genesis fifteen six, we see that uh, Abraham that his belief was attributed to him as righteousness. So that's the power, that's the very power of faith, that's what does the trick, is that our belief in the true and living God is what will be accounted to us as righteousness. Now, I don't know what you see when you look at the mirror in the mirror most days. I don't personally see righteousness. I see uh, somebody that's struggling to hold it all together. But when we look at it from God's lens, we see righteousness. So that's really the question. How do we, how do we view success? How do we, What lens are we looking through? Do you see a, a school teacher? Do you see a factory worker? Do you see a son of a carpenter? Right? So that's what the world sees. But what God sees is righteous, redeemed. He's got belief. All right. Let's move to the next slide, please. On to uh, verses 7 seven through 13, if I can find my way all the way back to Mark. Mark 6, verse 7. And he called the twelve to himself, and he began to send them out two by two, and gave them power over unclean spirits. And he commanded them to take Nothing for the journey except a staff, no bag, no bread, no copper in their money belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. He also said to them, In whatever place you go, whatever place you enter a house, stay there until you depart from that place, and whoever will not receive you, nor hear you, when you depart from there shake off the dust under your feet as a testimony against that place. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. And so they went out and preached that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. So verses 7 through 9, uh, my question to you, which is really more a question to me as I think about this, is do you have the faith to pack light? I find myself, uh, or have found myself, typically in one of two camps. Either the camp or the top picture. I got the minivan, I'm loaded up, we're going to Florida. Jesus, we love you, we want you to go with us, we want you to travel, but because much like Rain Man, I'm an excellent driver, I'm going to be in the driver's seat. And, you know, because I've got my lovely wife here with me, you know, she's going to be by my side, make a little loving, a little turtle loving on a mason. She's right there. Uh, Sorry for you folks who weren't Alabama fans. Um, And because you've given us almost an entire basketball team of kids, we've got the back of the van pretty well packed full. Now, we do have a little bit of room, though, Lord. we got a little bit of room for you up in the topper shell, right between the case of Dr. Pepper and the baby wipes. If we could just get you squeezed into this spot and get you nicely fit in it, we'd love for you to be our God. We'd love for you to travel with us, Jesus. We love you. But we need you to go right here and be in this spot. And when we need you, we'll open the topper, and we'll get you down, and, and we'll, we'll you know spend some time with you. But until then, if you could just hang out, that'd be great. That's the first spot that I feel like I find myself. The second spot is like the gentleman in the bottom. You see the joy on his face. Look at how happy that guy is. He has made it to the airport. He has managed to not get one smart cart, but two. So for all you sissies that can only get one smart cart through the airport, this guy got two smart carts. And he's got uh, three car seats, a whole bunch of bags, so many bags that poor Cameron here can't even ride in her own stroller, she's got to push it. Because we had to put bags on top of that. And then you got the guy in the background smiling. I to Wipe a smile off that guy's face. Anyway, so so here we are. We're, we're headed to the airport. We are going to ride on Jerusalem Airlines. We've decided that we want Jesus as our pilot. Lord, we can't, I can't drive. I realize I need you to do all the driving. I want to fly to the land of abundance. But I've got to get all my bags to the airport. I've got to get all this stuff loaded up. And so we find that we're loading up all these bags, and and I'm going to share a little story. It might have been this trip. It might have been a different one, but we decided to take the kids to St. Thomas. We're going to take the kids, and we're also going to take my mother-in-law so we can have an extra set of hands. And uh, we're going to fly out of Chicago O'Hare because they've got a direct flight so we don't have to mess around with connections. And if any of you have ever had the joy of flying out of Chicago O'Hare Airport, it is one of the three largest airports in the world. London Heathrow, Atlanta, Chicago O'Hare. Something crazy like a flight every 10 seconds leaving out of this place. Well, you can't park anywhere close. So you've got to park in a parking garage, and then uh, they drive you to the airport, and you get all your stuff in, you look like this caravan. I know how Jacob must have felt traveling, you know, with all this stuff. And we get, we get through security. We get all the way to the gate. I get everybody there. I'm feeling good. And just as we get seated, my mother-in-law says to my wife, hey, you, uh, you grabbed my bag of medication out of the front of the van, right? And I said, excuse me? Beg your jargon? Well, what are you talking about? My mother-in-law, God bless her, has had seven back surgeries. So when she says, did you grab my bag of medication, she's not talking about Tylenol and ibuprofen. So after several minutes of trying to call to see if we could ship prescription drugs to an island destination so it's there when we get there, uh, for some reason they don't ship prescription medication to you in an island destination, especially when it's narcotics. I don't know why. Um, I pick up the phone and call the uh, nice gentleman at the parking garage, who, by the way, they don't speak a lot of English. So I get the, hello, parking garage. So So miracle number one is he actually understands, after a few minutes of me explaining black van, purple bag, black van, purple bag, that I need you to meet me out front with the purple bag of medicine. Miracle number two is I get all the way back up to the front. And the part of the story I forgot to say is we start in Terminal A at Chicago O'Hare. We were actually flying out of Terminal O, and they don't skip letters. We were really in O. So I get all the way back to the front. I, miracle number three, meet the nice Indian gentleman in the van with the purple bag. Now I've got the bag. I'm headed back. I make it to security and see the world's largest security line an hour and a half in security. And in that hour and a half, I had time. I had time to think. And I had time to think and ponder the fact that I was holding a purple bag of prescription medication of which I had no prescription for. Not only did I have no prescription for it, it had a female lady's name on it, and I don't really look like a Nancy. So I'm like, oh, Lord. I made it all the way back here. I meet the Indian guy somehow, and now I'm going to get the body cavity search from the guy at the other end when he realizes I've got prescription narcotics at our mine. So, miracle number, I think I'm on four now. I set the bag on the belt, and it goes right through. Nobody asks. Nobody asks any questions. I almost wanted to turn around and say, you know, what? i got prescription drugs in here with no prescription, right? But I didn't. I take off running. I'm now sprinting because my lovely bride is texting me. Where are you? Where are you? They're holding the plane. I'm sprinting through the airport. And the Ashley people, we were built for strength, not speed. I tell people this all the time. I'm built like a middle linebacker. I was never asked to play cornerback. So as I run through the airport, it looks something like, if this was a movie soundtrack, it'd be... All the way back to Terminal O. Escalator, elevator, escalator, elevator. And as I'm rounding the corner, the stewardess is at the top of the ramp, and she's going come on, and I'm, I'm coming, and as I turn the corner, I trip and fall, and medication goes everywhere, no, I made that part up, medication didn't really go, but if it was a movie, it would have been a lot better if the medicine would have fell, so I get right inside the tunnel in time to hear the door slam behind me, and I get all the way down to the plane, just in time, the door to slam behind me, and at this point in time, I made it, I'm out of breath, but I made it, I get seated, And I'm there on Jerusalem Airlines. Jesus is my pilot, right? Except now I'm out of breath. I got all my bags. I got them all packed. But I got no energy. I got no ability. That if I finally make it to Jerusalem Airlines and I've spent all my time packing all my bags, making sure I get all my stuff, uh, I can't do any of the work he wanted me to do. And that's where I find myself far too often is I'm so worried about getting all my bags on the plane. I'm making such an effort to get all the way back through the airport, and man, am I glad I made it. Just barely, the door slammed behind me. But the gifts that he would have had for me, the things he would have had for me to do, I can't do them. I'm too out of breath. I'm too wiped out. So I, I think that so often we find ourselves toting around this baggage. And that's really the faith that these disciples had when they went out. They unloaded their bags. They put their trust in the Lord. And some of my personal favorite baggage, maybe you've got other personal favorites, despair, disgust, doubt, frustration, overwhelmed. I left fear off, not because I'm not fearful, just because I'm forgetful, which might have been a bag that I should have put on too. But doubt to me is one of the ones that's Satan's favorite. You know, doubt how often do we doubt? I doubt whether or not I can sit up here and do this. I doubt whether or not I've even got anything good to say. I doubt that I'm righteous. I doubt that he loves me. I doubt, I doubt, I doubt. And by that doubt, the thing he had for us to do were rendered useless. We, we brought the bag of doubt. We still made it, but the things he had for us were not able to actually accomplish. So what I wanted to, to leave you with... Uh, as we look at this, I wanted to just quickly go back and look at verse seven, that Jesus gave them the power over unclean spirits, and then He commanded, right? And then in verse 13, that they cast out the demons and anointed and the sick were, and the sick were healed. In the synoptic gospel of uh, Luke in chapter nine, he actually says he gave them the power to heal the sick and to cast out demons. So the very power that Jesus gave his disciples to do those two things, they were able to turn around and do. And why were they able to do the things that he gave them the power to do? Because they had the faith to pack light. They had the faith to fully trust that God was going to take care of them in every situation. They didn't bring anything with them. No baggage. And he delivered 100%. So he's going to give us the power to do the thing He wants us to do. We just got to have the faith to believe that He's really going to do it. And as we look at places uh, and things that we put our trust in, in Psalm uh, 27 it says, uh, some put their trust in chariots, some put their trust in horses, and we will put our trust in the Lord our God. I paraphrased a little bit there, but what, what do you put your trust in? Do you put your trust in that? Do you have a belief in that? Some days I do pretty good and some days I don't. And, and I would ask you to do this with me. I know this is lame, but it's going to be several weeks before I'm back up here. So if you would, take, take a finger like this. Just take a finger. You don't have to. If you're my boys, you'd already have the finger halfway up your nose. So I, I'd like you to take a finger and just reach up over your head and go, ding, ding. So what we did right there is we just pushed the call button. And we're going to ask Jesus, our pilot, on Jerusalem Airlines to open the cargo hold and just dump that stuff at 35,000 feet. You already brought it with you. You're already on the plane. Just, if you ask him to dump it, he will. And I know we're at 35,000 feet, and I know that there's a chance that the baggage could fall down on the ground, and there'd be multiple fatalities, but you also know that the earth's covered in 70% of water, and the odds of the bags not disintegrating before it hits the earth is probably zero, and It's an analogy, and there's not really any playing to begin with. So you understand all that. But the point is that we've got to have enough trust and enough faith to be able to ask him to just dump our baggage. So if you would, with me, make the choice to push the call button. Heavenly Father, um, we thank you so much for an opportunity to dig into your word. We thank you, Father, for what what appears to be crazy rambling at times, but I pray that... uh, those that need to hear, hear. And uh, we just praise you for your word, your, your goodness. We thank you for uh, your faithfulness, even when we lack faith. And uh, in all these things, as we go out through the week, we just pray that you would uh, continue to increase our faithfulness. In Jesus' name, amen.